Well, brothers and sisters, it's lovely to be able to share with you tonight uh, around the Word of God again. Tonight we continue our Faith Academy study on the Apostles' Creed, a statement that has given unity and clarity uh, to believers like you and me since the days of the early church and the early church fathers, uh, helping us to stay on track in a world that's full of false teachings about God and about faith. And so it's really good that we have this summary of what our faith is all about. Every single statement is pregnant with spiritual meaning based on scriptures from both Old and New Testaments that we believe to be inerrant and fully inspired by God himself. And so we come humbly uh, to God's word tonight, or I encourage you to do that, uh, that we come humbly to God's word as we consider the crux of our Christian faith concerning the historical facts about the cruel punishment and death and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the creed describes as God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried for you and for me as an expression of the greatest love that any of us can know. And so let's just bow in prayer for a moment. Let's pray. Abba Father, we believe that we stand on holy ground tonight as we come to the cross where your son was brutally beaten and willingly died as a penalty for our sin. We ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you will inform our inquiring minds about the historical facts concerning Jesus' sacrifice. And then, Lord, would you break our hearts about sin and its devastating and destructive consequences in all our lives so that we may lay hold on the blood of Christ for our salvation and that we may live our lives in deep humility and gratitude as we cry, my Lord, what love is this that paid so dearly that I, the guilty one, may grow free? Oh, grant us grace to submit ourselves now to your truth and to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our scripture for tonight is found in Matthew chapter 27. You'll find that on page 998 um, in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along with that. I encourage you to have the Word of God open uh, in the book or on your phone or whatever it is that you use. Particular welcome to those of you who are online. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and would like to read along, if you go online and look for uh, an app called BibleGateway.com, uh, then you'll be able to find this reading that we're looking at tonight from the gospel according to Matthew and chapter 27. And we're going to begin at verse 1. We're not going to read it all, um, but in order to cover the, the parts of the, the, the creed, uh, we're going to read a, a good bit of it. So uh, stick with me and I'll tell you what verse to read. So we begin at verse 1. This is the word of God. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, you have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even, a single, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. 
Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew, he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, he said, what crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all of the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. What an awful thing to say. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Verse 33. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided up his cloths by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, no, no, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Verse 57, as evening approached, there came a man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. And going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was were sitting there opposite the tomb. And the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, 
We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The questions that arise out of tonight's section of the creed are, who was Pontius Pilate? Did he really live and rule and oversee the crucifixion, death, and burial of somebody called Jesus Christ? As a result, can we truly believe what the Bible says about these people so that we can confidently entrust every moment of our lives in 2023 to him? Is this believable? Well, thankfully, the answer to all those questions is a resounding yes. It's important to note that the only historical figure whom Jesus met and, and is named in this creed is Pontius Pilate. This is probably because he wasn't a Christian, and he had a prominent political role in Israel at that time, which made, which made mention of him a solid anchor, a historical anchor, to prove that the life of Jesus was not just a myth like that of a, a Zeus or Adonis, but it's historical fact. And because it's historical fact, then we can truly believe every statement in the creed and we can build our lives on it. So the question, what can we really know about Pontius Pilate? Well, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor who presided over the province of Judea from 27 to 37 AD. However, until 1961, Pilate was a shadowy figure mentioned in a small handful of roughly contemporary ancient documents. The most well-known of these, uh, of course, are the four New Testament Gospels that we know very well. Uh, the Pilate's name appears in all of these four Gospels, and the four writers record different things concerning his involvement in Jesus' execution. And that's a really important thing for you to know if you're a skeptic, because Lots of us are skeptical about these things, and we really want to be sure. And so the fact that the four gospel writers wrote different things about Pilate and his involvement shows that they hadn't colluded to make up a story. This was their own lived experience of what was going on. Other literary sources are from people who had no love for Jesus whatsoever. That's also important, because they're not going to write lies. They're just going to write what they saw, what they heard about this Jesus, about Pilate, about what was going on in Israel at that time. And so they had no love for Jesus or the Christians, but they just recorded historical facts as they witnessed them. And so they provide independent evidence that Jesus really lived and died and rose again. Who are they? Well, Flavius Josephus was a first century Jewish historian born in Jerusalem. Another guy called Philo was a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria in Egypt, and Tacitus was a first-century Roman historian from what is now southern France. 
I give you the geographical information because, again, if they all lived in number 357 of the one street, you would say, well, they had coffee every day and they made up a story about this. But no, these men probably never met each other at all. They were from very different parts of the world. And yet they all wrote in detail about Pilate and his dealings with this man called Jesus. Their ancient texts paint a picture of Pilate as a cruel man who attempted to impose the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, on Judea with an iron fist. However, here's the good news. In 1961, real concrete and indisputable archaeological evidence for the historicity of this man called Pontius Pilate was unearthed in excavations at an amphitheater and chariot racecourse right beside the Mediterranean Sea at Caesarea Maritima. I've been there. It's an amazing place. The breeze is amazing off the sea. Fantastic. Right on the coast of Israel. And whenever you're, you've been there, you understand why Pontius Pilate would want to live there instead of the, the uh, Praetorium fort, Fortress in Jerusalem. Whenever you go into Jerusalem, it's roasting. It's roasting and it's so humid. Whereas there at Caesarea Maritima, perfect, the, the sea breezes. And there's actually a swimming pool that they have unearthed as well that they have dug out. Um, so it was a nice place for him to live. Well, in the summer of 1961, a team of Italian excavators stumbled on a find that no one would dare expect. In one of the theater steps, there lay a large stone chiseled with a legible Latin inscription of a dedication to the infamous Roman Praefectus Pontius Pilate, under whose authority Jesus was executed. The inscription bearing Pilate's name probably dedicated a temple uh, built in honor of the emperor Tiberius. You can see the word Tiberium on the picture on the screen. So do you see it there? So that's what's called the Pilate Stone. That speaks of the historicity of Pilate. It, <clears throat> uh, it, the, the Pilate Stone confirms that Pilate was indeed the prefect of Judea according to what we read in our Bible and the Gospels. And so hearing that, then I say to you, you can trust that both he and Jesus Christ really existed. And so, if you've been skeptical about the Bible or in the New Testament and have never begun to read it for yourself, then let tonight be a new beginning for you. Maybe tonight you'll start. But you might say, but so we've got these old writings and we've got one archaeological artifact. Come on, can you not do better than that? Well, yeah, can. Because more recently, a second artifact with Pilate's name on it has come to light. During the 1968 to 69 excavations at a huge fortress called Herodium, I've been there. It's amazing, this big conical hill. And Herod dug out a settlement, a, a fortress for himself there. It's just up above uh, Bethlehem in Israel, an amazing place. And so at Herodium, a copper ring was found in an archaeological lair that dated no later than 71 AD. And in 2018, that ring was taken out of storage it was cleaned and photographed and reanalyzed, and they discovered that it actually has a Greek inscription, Pilato, which is the name for Pilate. And that was a very rare name. In fact, given the rarity of the name Pilate in the first century, it's likely that that ring was used by Pontius Pilate as the seal of his authority on official documents. And so that's two witnesses. That should be enough. But the good news is there's a third there's a third piece of archaeological evidence uh, that grounds our biblical reading in history, um, and that uh, is the existence of quite a number of small bronze coils, uh, coins called prutas. 
uh, that Pontius Pilate minted when he was prefect of Judea, bearing the inscription L-A-Z, which signifies the 17th year of Tiberius Caesar. And so, bring that all together. The written works of uh, Christian, Jewish, and Roman historians, the Pilate stone at Caesarea, the Pilate ring found uh, to the north of Bethlehem at the Herodium, and the bronze prutas that he minted all confirm to our minds and our hearts that Pontius Pilate was a real man who served as governor of Judea. These are just a few of the hundreds of archaeological relics that prove that we can approach the text of the New Testament with confidence, believing that they're true and reliable, so that readers like you and like me can be sure of what God's Word says about the events concerning Jesus, concerning his death, his crucifixion, first of all, his death and his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. These things are true and incontrovertible. And so, let's take a look now at what the Bible says about Jesus concerning his fulfillment of God's plan in his humiliation and death. The creed hammers home the fact that Jesus was really dead, as the Bible records, <clears throat> contrary to what Gnostic philosophers of the time tried to argue in the first and second centuries to prevent people from following Jesus. He was truly nailed to a cross by the Romans, and he experienced the most excruciating suffering that any human being could ever know. The Romans were so, so clever. They devised that way of killing people, where they tried so hard to stay alive on that cross. And yet, it was a means of showing anybody around who might in any way think that they're going to rise up against the Romans. Well, if you do, you can look forward to this. Watch, and I don't think you'll want to stand against us. That's why the Romans used crucifixion. But Jesus wasn't merely unconscious. This is the kind of thing that the Gnostics were saying. He was just, he, he just swooned. The death of Jesus wasn't a swoon or a coma, but it was death in every sense of the word. His spirit left his body and went to the realm of the dead, just like every human spirit does. He had a real corpse, a corpse that was placed in a tomb, and the Romans ensured that he was dead by sticking a spear in his side. How do we know? Well, it's in the gospel record. Consider the four gospel records, and you'll see how time after time the points made emphatically that Jesus really died. He wasn't taken down from the cross as if he had died. It, he, he wasn't in a swoon. He wasn't unconscious. He was dead. He was dead. Look at the account of the first Easter day written by the historian Dr. Luke in chapter 24 of his gospel. Women who had followed Jesus went to the grave expecting to find nothing else but proof of the tragic death of their Savior. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we read uh, that as they walked, they worried about how they would be able to move the large stone at the mouth of the, of the grave. They carried spices and ointments to anoint Jesus' dead body with. And when they reached the tomb and discovered that it was empty, they were perplexed about the absence of his body and the corpse that they had expected to find there. It just wasn't there. They knew he was dead. They saw him dead. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him taken. They saw him put in the tomb, but he wasn't there. 
And so they were perplexed. And when they went to tell the disciples uh, that the tomb was empty, guess what? The disciples also refused to believe them. And so as far as they were concerned, they'd seen it. They had seen Jesus' crucifixion. It was brutal, brutal. And they'd seen that he was dead. Dead. Indisputably dead. And when Jesus was buried, they went into secret hiding places, shuttered the windows and bolted the doors because they were terrified, thinking about what might happen to them if the Romans found them. Now, think about this. Why would all of that have happened if he wasn't really dead? It's so important that we know that he was. So the disciples were totally overwhelmed by the reality of Jesus' death. It devastated them. But let's think for a minute about some other people in the story. Let's think of the position on that Friday night of the unbelieving enemies of Jesus. The leaders of the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Roman authorities. It's interesting. The Jews hated the Romans, and yet they, they, they came together for one purpose. What was that purpose? They wanted to get rid of Jesus. And in the face of it, all of the evidence was on their side, wasn't it? The man who'd hung on the cross had been certified as a dead man by the Roman authorities. The fact of death was confirmed by a spear being plunged into his side. We read about that in John 19. And the fact that they hadn't any need to break his legs. Normally, they would go around when someone was crucified, they'd break their legs because that would mean then that they wouldn't be able to pull themselves up to get breath anymore. They wouldn't be able to suffer anymore, try to stay alive anymore. Their legs would be broken, their body would be pulled down like that, and they'd asphyxiate. They couldn't breathe anymore. But that didn't happen to Jesus. And you know why? They didn't have to break his legs because Jesus went to that cross to die for you. He went to die. He didn't go there to try and be a brave man and see how long he could stay alive. No. He went there to die for you. And yet, look at this group of the Romans and the Jews who hated each other, but hated Jesus more. And they thought that they'd get rid of him. And as I say, all of the evidence was on their side. The death certificate had been written and signed. The body had been uh, laid in a borrowed grave. It had been sealed and protected by a 24-7 Roman guard. Surely to goodness, that was the end of them. Good riddance. Dear friends, please think about these things. Please accept these facts that the creed affirms. The Jesus movement at that time had collapsed. The disciples had all run away and left Jesus on the cross alone, apart from one or two men and a few of the women folk. folk. Jesus was certified dead, and he was buried just like any other human being. He was dead. We'll rejoice in the facts of the resurrection in next week's study. I encourage you to come back. And so all that remains for tonight is a reflection on the most contested line in the creed that Jesus descended into hell. The biblical basis for this statement is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 to 20, 
where we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. A lot of the best-known Bible teachers of our time can't agree with the statement that's in the creed, that Jesus went to hell. Two of them are R.C. Sproul and John Piper. They say that the reference to hell is not supported in Scripture, and so this phrase should be excluded from the creed. And I know fine well, because I know in my congregation in Port Stewart, there were people who came to me and who said to me, Terry, if you ever use the creed I'm telling you now, I will not be saying Jesus went to hell. I don't believe that that happened. I don't believe that the Bible tells us that. And so let's ask ourselves for a moment, why would Peter include this information in his letter that no other biblical writer mentions? Well, if you know anything about Peter and about his story, an intelligent answer is that he may have asked the risen Jesus about what happened on what we call Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Day. Maybe it happened on the beach. You know the story in John 21? When Jesus came, the resurrected Jesus came? Or maybe it happened uh, in the 40-day Bible, uh, Kingdom Bible uh, um, school that we read about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. And so maybe Peter put that in because Peter personally had spoken to Jesus and Jesus had told him that, and so that's why he's got it in that part of the Scriptures. And so maybe he was told by Jesus that he went there to proclaim victory to all of the righteous people who had trusted God before he died, affirming that there would be salvation for all who, like Abraham, had faith and that faith was accounted to them as righteousness, as we read in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. And also that there would be judgment for everyone, everyone who dies in disobedience of the will of God, such as those who are mentioned here in the days of Noah. The resurrected Jesus could have told Peter about this during the, as I say, the 40-day kingdom Bible school that he led before ascending to heaven that we read about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. But... We can't be certain of that. We know that he could have done that, but we can't be certain of that because there are no other biblical references to it. And so we can understand why a group of Christian leaders held a, what's called the English Language Liturgical Consultation in 1988, and they adopted the more logical and more acceptable statement that he descended to the dead. That statement is indisputable by everybody, and should be affirmed by every single believer because we have scriptures like Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, which declare the words of Jesus himself on this subject. Where better can we go to the Savior himself? What did he say? Matthew 12 and verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a, a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That phrase, heart of the earth, is believed to be a reference to a mysterious place within the earth reserved for the dead by Almighty God. 
And the ancient teaching of the church is that all who died before the crucifixion, whether they were righteous or unrighteous, they all went to the same undifferentiated realm of the dead. This place is called Sheol in Hebrew and Hades in Greek. And it was believed by Old Testament people, by the Old Testament saints, to be a waiting room for the resurrection and the final judgment. Well, we've taken time to analyze the facts tonight. And when Jesus died on the cross, he really did die in fulfillment of ancient prophecies like Psalm 22 and uh, Isaiah 25. And because of this real death, he went spiritually into Hades because Hades was the realm of all dead people. But here's the good news. We thank God for many fine details that we can glean about eternity, about the realm of the dead, uh, and what happens to dead people from the words again of Jesus. Where better to go than to the words of Jesus? In Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, we hear Jesus telling a desperate, hopeful thief on the cross. You know the story? There's two thieves there, and one of the thieves cries out for mercy. And because of that, Jesus says these words, This day you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Wow. That's good, isn't it? That word paradise in the English language, it conjures up all things beautiful and desirable and enjoyable. A place that everybody would want to go to, surely. That's why Paul tells us that it's far better for believers to be absent from the, the body and present with the Lord. However, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us a much fuller picture about eternity and the story of an unnamed rich man and a beggar whose name is Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, read that before you go to bed. He makes it very plain that whenever we die, there are actually two possible destinations that we will end up in eternity. One is a place of safety and security like paradise that he calls in Luke chapter 16 and verse 22, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom. And the other is a place called Hades, the place of torment that the rich man ended up in. And it was so awful that if you read the story, you'll find that he longed that his family be warned to avoid this place, lest they end up there too. And so, friends, it's a fact that the gospel writers record Jesus speaking far more about hell than about heaven. Do you know that? Do you realize that? Jesus spoke far more about hell than about heaven. Why? Because of his passion and his very mission to save lost sinners like you and me from the very real torments of that place called hell. I wonder, have you, have you taken time to think about that? And more importantly, have you made peace with God? by repenting of your deliberate and rebellious sin against God and entrusting your life to Jesus for time and for eternity. Have you done that? I urge you tonight in the light of the truth of Scripture to do that before you sleep tonight, lest you die in your sleep and wake up in eternity without hope and without Christ and experience that eternal torment that Jesus spoke about. How awful that would be. Listen, I'm telling you, you might say, oh, come on, I won't, uh, I, won't, I won't die in my sleep. I buried many a person who died in their sleep, let me tell you, in the, amongst the 700-odd people that I buried when I was in Port Stewart 
as minister for 20 years. And so it's real. The place of hell is real. Before we finish, I'd like to make a brief mention or comment about that amazing passage at the end of Matthew 27 about events that immediately followed Jesus' death that prove that Jesus accomplished something amazing through his sacrifice. I have never, ever, ever heard a preacher mention these verses, ever, in my 66 years. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50, we read, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That was amazing. That was a God thing. Abba Father opened up a new and living way into his presence that was previously forbidden. How? Through faith in Jesus' precious blood shed on that cross at Golgotha. We continue to read, The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life and they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and they appeared to many people. Wow! Can you imagine it? Can you imagine seeing your loved ones standing before you again saying, Look, here I am. I'm alive. Can you imagine it? And we read in verse 54, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. Surprise, surprise. I'd be terrified too. And they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Can you imagine? Pagan Romans saying that? Let's think about these crazy supernatural events for a moment. In the light of what we've been saying about the whole Hades thing, it may be that the Spirit of Jesus immediately went to the place of the dead to set these Old Testament saints free as the first fruits and a foretaste of what would happen to all who die with faith in the resurrection when Christ the Messiah returns to wrap up history. <clears throat> and you know, I've always found that it's, it's fascinating to note that there's nowhere in the New Testament, not one hint or suggestion anywhere in the New Testament, that these resurrected saints in Matthew 27 lived and breathed for a few days and then died again. No, it's not there. And so our imaginations run wild with excitement at the thought that maybe, maybe, Maybe like Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, these people ascended directly into heaven after they had testified to the resurrection of Jesus with their lips and with their lives. Friends, we can't say that for sure. But what we can say for sure tonight is that the Lord Jesus Christ did come to this earth, that he did die by crucifixion on a Roman cross at the hands of this man called Pontius Pilate. Over 2,000 years ago, at a place called Golgotha, outside the walls of Jerusalem, to save sinners like you and like me from the place of torment that he calls hell, and that he was buried, and according to his own promise. Listen to this. In John chapter 14, his whole death had a purpose. After dying, in John 14, he said he was going to prepare a place. He has gone to prepare a place for you. Listen to me. This is the good news of the gospel. 
Jesus died and rose again and has gone to prepare a place for you in his father's house. If you will just accept the historical facts about his life and death at the hands of Pontius Pilate, if you will lay hold by faith on his glorious gift of salvation that he won for you by conquering death and hell and sin on that cross 2,000 years ago, fact for you and for me. <coughs> Folks, if you accept these truths tonight and if you allow Jesus into your life, you never, ever, ever need to have any fear of death again. Why? Because Jesus has defeated death. Hallelujah. Jesus has defeated it. And so with Paul, if you have faith in Jesus tonight, you can sing the victory chorus at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death has been swallowed up by triumphant life. Who's got the last word, O death? O death, where's your sting? Who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening. And law code guilt that gives sin its leverage and destructive power. But, but now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin and guilt and death, are gone. Gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Wow. What a great anthem to be able to sing. Dear friend, if you accept the truthfulness and certainty of what the Apostles' Creed declares tonight, it will shape your whole life. And the way that Rich Mullins described so personally in a song that he wrote about the Creed, here's what he wrote. He said, I believe that what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. Folks, is your faith making you, you? Are you allowing the risen Jesus to make you the person that he wants you to be so that you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, becoming more and more like Jesus every day? Here again, Rich Mullins' words. Let this be your creed. Let this be your response. I believe that what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. Thanks be to God. Let's just bow in prayer for a moment.